Dale and Nancy had just started dating when someone who claimed to be speaking on God's behalf told them that their relationship would flow like a river. They took it as a sign and got married. It didn't take long for things to unravel. Dale was controlling and abusive. He went back to some of the habits of his pre-Christian days. Drugs, pornography, and threats of violence turned the beautiful promise they'd heard into a nightmare. If you'd asked Dale and Nancy why they married so quickly, I'm pretty sure they would have said that it was a simple act of faith. They believed they were supposed to be together. People make decisions like this all the time. Someone hears a sermon about the unreached masses and quits his job to go into the ministry. An older couple decides to adopt after their own kids are grown and gone because they believe it's what God wants. But faith decisions don't have to be big. Sometimes they're small. We say something to a stranger because we feel the prompting of the Spirit. We give money to a panhandler we pass on the street. Sometimes things work out. Sometimes, like Dale and Nancy, the wheels come off, and we're left wondering whether we got it wrong. Maybe it wasn't God's voice at all. When I was a new believer, we used to talk a lot about having a simple childlike faith. But looking back on some of the things we did, what we practiced was not faith, but naivete. Our faith wasn't simple, it was simplistic, at times even childish. One Saturday night, a bunch of us piled into a car and drove down into the city of Detroit. We had no real destination in mind. We expected to be led, put that in quotation marks, by the Holy Spirit, stopping to pray at every intersection before deciding which way to turn. We ended up in a bad part of town where we stumbled on a drunken man lying in a doorway. He must be the reason God sent us here, Ron said. Ron, a shifty-eyed prophet with a receding hairline and a penchant for falling into the folding chairs whenever the Spirit came upon him, was one of the self-appointed leaders of our little group. Ron thought we should take the stranger with us, but the man only wanted a few dollars to buy another drink. Despite his protests, we pulled him to his feet, bundled him into the car, and drove back to the suburbs. The next day, Ron brought our new friend to church and asked the pastor to take a special offering. The pastor politely declined. Maybe he was suspicious. Perhaps the pastor didn't think it was the best way to help the man. Whatever the reason, Ron didn't take the refusal well. He stood up in the church service and in a prophetic tone declared, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Then he and the stranger walked out, followed by several chagrined church members who offered him money. In a day or two, the stranger disappeared. Ron didn't know where he'd gone. Some hinted that he might not have been a man at all, but an angel that we had entertained unawares. But I suspected that the poor fellow had made his way back to the doorway where we first found him. The whole affair bothered me. Was it really God who had guided us, or had we merely gone downtown on a whim? Was ours a bold act of faith, or a naive exercise of middle-class guilt? It's tempting to think that the answer to these questions is in the outcome. If God had been in it, the man would have stayed and his life would have turned around. But the stranger might have gone back to his old ways even if God had prompted us to rescue him. 
Would things have been any different for my friends Dale and Nancy if they had waited longer and gone through a traditional courtship? Perhaps. But there are plenty of people who have taken the long path only to call it quits in the end. Joshua Harris comes to mind. Sometimes what we think of as faith is merely sincerity. We are convinced that we're doing the right thing. We think that we are acting in God's interest and at his prompting, but we are mistaken. Not only do we misunderstand what God wants from us, we misinterpret our own motives. Like James and John, who wanted to call down fire upon the Samaritan village that refused to welcome Jesus, we think that we are doing God's will. In reality, we don't know what kind of spirit we are of. James and John had sincerity enough to spare. What they lacked was self-awareness. In the past few months, we've seen a flurry of notable church leaders turn their back on the things they once believed. We want to know how such a thing can happen. How can people whose faith was once so prominent suddenly throw it away? Many conclude that such people were never really Christians to begin with. They went out from us because they were not of us. Perhaps this is true. The Bible has many warnings about those who profess the faith but are impostors. But I wonder if some of those who have walked away believe that it is God who has broken faith. They've turned their backs because the Christianity they embraced didn't deliver on its promise. In most cases, as far as I can tell from the outside, it wasn't the gospel promise itself that has disappointed them, but something else. It is more a vision of what their lives would be like if they only believed that has failed them. They're like those that Linda K. Klein profiles in her book Pure, a blistering critique of the purity movement of the 1980s. Many in the movement seem to believe that if they followed the rules and pursued sexual purity with a passion, they would live happily ever after. Klein describes the reaction of Muriel, one of the subjects she interviewed, this way. How could she believe anything evangelicalism taught her if the one thing they said was most important, remain pure before marriage and you'll have a blissful sexual life after marriage and be supported by the larger community, wasn't true? Of course, it doesn't have to be sex. The promise we believe might be something else. Maybe it's the expectation that the church's leaders will behave like shepherds and care for the church. Maybe it's the conviction that if I put Jesus first, I will succeed. I'll get the job I want. My ministry will grow and expand. Life will go the way I want. Sometimes, the things that shake the foundations of our faith are embarrassingly small. But the basic reasoning is always the same. I have believed, so why aren't things working out better for me? I'm following Jesus, so why isn't he doing more for me? Why aren't things easier? These kinds of questions aren't just asked by apostates and people who have been taken in by the prosperity gospel. They are more common among people of genuine faith than you might think. This is the sort of questioning the psalmist describes in Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The Old Testament patriarch Job also had questions for God. Job's questions are the obverse of Asaph's. Job doesn't ask, why do the wicked prosper, but instead, why do the righteous suffer? 
In each of these cases, the frame is a narrow one. The circumstances that cause us to question God's goodness, and sometimes even our faith, are not always as noble as theirs. Our disappointments aren't great disappointments like those of Asaph or Job. Too often they are petty and self-absorbed. But for some reason, that doesn't make them any easier to bear. To the person who struggles with such questions, there only seems to be two possible answers. Either there's something wrong with me, or there's something wrong with God. Of course, anyone who has spent time in the realm of faith knows that the latter possibility is not really on the table. The game is rigged, and the odds always favor the house. God is never wrong. The problem is always us. But the thing that is wrong with us may not be what we think. We thought the problem was in our execution. We weren't playing the game right. If we just tried a little harder, if we followed the rules, we could make it work for us. When it doesn't, we're tempted to give up, not only on ourselves, but on God. We are tempted to give up on God, so the fault won't lie with us. I think everyone who has some vague belief in God until he becomes a Christian has the idea of an exam or a bargain in his mind, C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity. The first result of real Christianity is to blow that idea to bits. It turns out that this was God's intent all along. His aim is not to shatter faith, only our naive bargaining faith, which thinks we can barter our lives for a blessing. God begins to deconstruct our false expectations and the false image we have of ourselves. God has been waiting for the moment at which you discover there is no question of earning a pass mark in this exam or putting him in your debt, Lewis explains. When my oldest son was about to graduate from high school, I had one of those parental conversations with him about adulthood, duty, and the necessity of doing things one doesn't really want to do. When I was finished, he said, So what you're telling me is that life basically sucks. That wasn't what I was telling him, but I could see why he thought it was. I wouldn't be surprised to learn that you think I'm saying something similar about God. Does it seem to you that God's primary agenda is to disappoint you? Perhaps you think that I'm saying that the chief end of man is to suck it up and lower your expectations. If God intends to leave us disappointed, his goal is that we would be disappointed with ourselves and the simplistic bargaining faith to which we are so addicted. Like a doctor who must break a bone to set it, God shatters our misaligned expectations so that faith will have room to grow in the right direction. He doesn't do this lightly, but carefully, and often, I think, with tears. What are we to make of the defections from faith of so many prominent Christians? I think we ought to be careful not to be smug in our rush to judgment about them. It may be true that they were never of us to begin with, but we too are guilty of naive faith and unreasonable expectations of the Christian life. We shouldn't shrug off their repudiation of the foundational truths of the Christian faith. Their defection is a sin, and their loss is a tragedy. They are responsible to God for the decision that they have made. However, some of the comments I've seen about their departure from the faith on social media sound too much like gloating to me. Besides, we don't yet know how their story will end. Several years after my friends Dale and Nancy divorced, I talked with Nancy on the phone. She told me how terrible the experience had been for her, and how, after the divorce, she had walked away from the church and from God. 
the promise had failed. She spent years feeling like damaged goods. She believed that God no longer had a purpose for her life. And one day, she realized that what she had believed about herself was a lie. Not only was God waiting, he was welcoming. The time she and I spoke, Dale was still far from God. Their story is a kind of parable. Some who have renounced their faith will discover that what they have rejected is not God or the gospel, but a counterfeit. Others will continue to live in a way which suggests that they were not of us to begin with. But either way, God will be waiting.